Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. In this episode 357, we feature Martin Clark and his latest legal thriller, The Plinko Bounce. Entertainment Wiki says Martin Clark is hands down our finest legal thriller writer. His recent novel is a perfect example of that praise with engaging characters and interesting action inside and outside the courtroom. You will find yourself rooting for small-town public defender Andy Hughes, who has been underpaid to look after the poor, the addicted, and the unfortunate. I really enjoyed this book. It's a fast and fun read. And if you like what you hear today, check out our episode 52, more than 300 episodes ago, where I sat down with Martin at Park Road Books to talk about his book, The Substitution Order, another book with some interesting legal twists and turns. Martin, welcome to the show. Landis, thanks. And and I was trying to when I heard the intro, I was trying to think, I was guessing I was earlier than that. I was guessing I was about episode 20, 25, or 30. I, I was early on there, and um, and I know, I think, you've hit 350, haven't you? We have, yeah. We're, I got an email, we're, congrats. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, that was, that's, yeah, about 300 episodes ago, we were uh, at Park Road Books uh, with uh, Sally Brewster and sat down. That was one of our early live podcasts when uh, you confessed, I think, to everyone about your early rejections. I think you pulled out a rejection letter at that point and read it to the to the crowd. Yeah, I did. I, I carry them with me. I still do. Um, and, and I have plenty. I'll never run out of rejection letters. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got plenty well, of material. Yeah, you've got, you, you're further along, though, than most at this point. Well, anyway, congratulations on the uh, Plinko Bounce. That was a great book. Thanks. Thanks for reading it. Um, and it was it was actually a fun book to write. Yeah. And and before we get into it, because I want to talk about the book today, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about you. For those uh, you know who don't uh, know you, you're coming to us, you say, from the sticks uh, somewhere in Virginia. Tell us about where you live and how that area influences your writing. I live in Patrick County, Virginia, which is South Side, Virginia. We are right on the Virginia North Carolina border. And almost all of my um, books are, are set in Patrick County. That's Stewart, Virginia. That's Martinsville, Virginia. Uh, I also have uh, uh, trips into Winston-Salem in this book and, and other books. Um, if we are if we are Mayberry, then Winston-Salem is our Mount Island. That's, <laughs> and and we are very much in the sticks. And I'm able to probably for the f- first time uh, that I'm doing the, um, any kind of podcast or I'm able to do it at home. Traditionally, I have to drive into town where we have the good internet. Uh, I have Starlink now and, and it works. I'm, I'm getting about 100 MP, Mbps down right now as we speak and I can see you. All right. Well, that's good. Well, this is not a uh, promotion for Starlink, but that's good to have it out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I just said I have satellite internet, and it really works. You're, you're fine. They'll get a little bump here, hope, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure they but, need me, you know, really uh, promoting them. Uh, well, look, uh, you know, for listeners uh, who haven't known about your past here, you, you were a courtroom uh, judge for many years, trial court judge for 27 years in the Virginia Circuit Court. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, 
and whether that experience uh, as a judge has influenced uh, this particular novel, if it did. It, all, my, all my novels have sort of the spark uh, in something I've seen, witnessed, or been involved in in court. And, um, and certainly this, this novel comes out of, uh, of some courtroom experience. I don't write those stories. They just give me an idea. That's the genesis. And, and, and then they're sort of rolled into fiction. And, and this book came about because, or, or the beginning of this book, it's, it's, it's start. I was watching a jury trial in which, because of a technicality, critical evidence, and it doesn't get much more critical than a confession, um, a, a confession had been lawyered out of the evidence. I'm watching the Commonwealth's attorney do her level best to convict a defendant. We all know he's guilty. He's guilty. He confessed. <laughs> His lawyer knows he's guilty. Everybody knows he's guilty except the members of the jury. And I thought it would be fun to write a, a legal thriller. And, and generally speaking, legal thrillers, mine included here before, have some sort of mischief or corruption. Uh, they have some sort of deus ex machina sometimes <laughs> near the end where the, the, the brooding, evil, conspiracy, it comes to light. But I thought it would be really interesting to write a legal thriller that actually tracks real law and takes a scenario, makes it into fiction, where everybody concerned does the right thing and the system works as it should. The Commonwealth attorney does a good job. The judge makes the correct, correct call. Defense lawyer does everything in this case, a public defender does everything the defense lawyer should do, but yet we get the wrong outcome. The, the, the outcome, the verdict does not track the objective truth. And that's what the plinko balance is, is, is about. Yeah. So one of the things I enjoy about your novels uh, as a former practicing lawyer myself is how you delve into these uh, nuances, these legal issues and, and bring, bring them to life uh, with these characters. In this case, uh, and I'm not giving anything away because early in the book, there's a Miranda warning and you said, the confession gets lawyered out and has something to do with, you know, that thing people see on TV, you have the right to remain silent. Everybody's familiar with the Miranda, if for no other reason than watching television, right? And so something happens with that Miranda warning. And as you say, everybody knows, um, you know, that this person is, is guilty. And one of the themes in your book is this idea of representing people that you know to be guilty. And, and we hear that everyone deserves a defense, but when you meet a villain like, Damien Bullens, uh, the, the villain in your book, you're really testing the empathy of the reader with the, uh, with the Miranda uh, constitutional defense there. Thoughts on that? And that's part of the tension in the book. It's part of the tension in my last book, uh, The Substitution Order, there's, there, or, and especially in, in one of my books, The Legal Limit. And there's, there's always a tension between, and, and you know this is a recovering trial lawyer, right, right. there's a tension <laughs> between this dynamic between the justice, between justice and the law. I will say this, and and I've a couple of people have asked me about this book, some early readers, and there seems to be, I think, just because of the world we live in and 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 the news cycle backdrop, there seems to be a sentiment that the system is skewed or broken, and and it really isn't, and and a number of of folks have said to me. Well, this happens all the time, and it really doesn't. The case that I'm writing about in, in the Plinko balance is an aberration. It's a unicorn. In 27 years, I guess, Landis, 
and and you 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 may have some sense of this as well. I've seen maybe two or three cases where because of some technicality or a glitch or hiccup in, in the system, we get the wrong verdict. And one of those was a theft case. It was a grand larceny case. Uh, but in, in, in my experience, one was a murder case. And that's frightening. And, um, and that's what this case is about. And, and all of us as, as lawyers have had the experience of representing someone who's guilty. Frequently, they're found guilty or they plead guilty. It is really rare that you know they're guilty and you put the Commonwealth through the test. And the Commonwealth has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt and something goes wrong and, and a guilty person walks free. That just doesn't happen a whole lot. Uh, but when it does, how we deal with that inside the courtroom and outside the courtroom and the repercussions, I think makes really good fiction. Yeah, and I think people need to be careful not to confuse, as you say, really good fiction uh, with reality. Because I, at, at Parker Books one time, John Grisham showed up and I asked a question. I said, why do you always make the judges and the lawyers out to be crooks and unethical right. individuals? And he said, well, I'd like to sell some books, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's something to that, right? And we're dealing with, we're trying to ramp up the tension a little bit, uh, you know, maybe add a little bit to it that, uh, you know, you can let your imagination loose, but, uh, but you do ground it in some reality. I mean, and, and in this particular case, uh, all of the characters I found to be very interesting. That's one of the things that you talk about in your writing that uh, you don't set out necessarily with a plot, but you set out with uh, characters. Um, and one of your characters, this fellow, Andy Hughes, who's the protagonist, he's our hero. Um, tell us about Andy. Tell us a bit about his story, why you wanted to write it. He's got a dog. He's a woodworker. Uh, he's divorced, but trying to make it work for the sake of his child. But uh, he's also got this dilemma. He wants out of the public defender's office but this case is pulling him back and he's got to, got to handle this one last case. One of the misconceptions in, in, in certainly in my part of the world is that public defenders aren't good lawyers. And one of the things that, that I really wanted to do with this book is to put a spotlight on PDs. By and large, they are experienced, they are conscientious, they are smart, but they are overworked. One of the riffs I, 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 I have in the book, uh, one of the characters notes that we've all heard of the high flyers. We've heard of the, uh, the, the, these lawyers who, who, are, who have great reputations. And we see them come into court and basically you get a, a show. You get some, it's, 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 it's the Coliseum and, and you get theatrics. But day in and day out, the PD's office, and that's all they do. They do criminal law. And, and they know the judges, they know the ropes, they know the routines. And, and it's, it's sort of like a surgeon doing hernia repair over and over and over. They have done these cases. And for a fraction of the cost, you will get just as good, just you'll get good represent, representation, probably better. I shouldn't say probably better, but just as good as the representation that you're getting from the TV lawyer or somebody you've heard of or, or some famous lawyer. And that's one of the, the, the points I make. PDs are overworked. But I guess, and, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, maybe because you get them for free, maybe just because <laughs> you go into court and they're assigned to you, they're, 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 their clients frequently think they're not good. One of the lines in the book is, is 
PD. It's not for public defender. It's for prison deliverer. I mean, how many times have I, <laughs> how many times have I heard that? But yet they do a really good job. And the reason they, they don't win every case is because, as we all know, m- many of their clients are guilty and many of their clients aren't very good at, at being a defendant. Yeah, and that's what I found uh, very intriguing about this book because you knew right away that this was a good lawyer. Uh, he, he paid his dues, he, he'd been through the ringer, and then he's got this case. Um, and he's smart, and he's figuring out ways to represent his client, but he's also a little bit conflicted as he's going through this because he knows what he's dealing with, which also ramps up the tension because he knows if he's successful in this case, it might not be the end of the story. Um does small town public defender Andy Hughes come from uh, any personal things you witnessed in the courtroom? Uh, anything that uh, you can share? He, he's just a composite. Andy Hughes is a composite. Now, a number of the other folks in the book, as always, are real people. Hmm. And if you're a character in one of my books, you won't have any problems spotting yourself because you'll be you'll you'll be mentioned by name it won't be well, hard there's no well, if you have a pod, if you have a podcaster in a future book i'll be looking for him okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll dress it up a little bit it'll be yeah. uh landis waiter or something like that uh, I'll, I'll do a, i'll do a little bit of camouflage for you yeah. the um but but andy hughes the, and this is sort of answering the question you asked me a minute ago and i'm a little discursive but Andy Hughes, if you if you do that job, if you're a public defender, it just takes a toll on those people. It really it's a hard job. It's a, a thankless job. And, and you're not going to be making the seven figures. You're not going to be getting the, the the quarter of a million dollar retainer. And it does wear you down. It wears you down because there, there's very little appreciation either from your peers or from your clients. The, the pay isn't great. Your caseloads are incredible. I think in, in, in this book, and I checked, I called one of my friends at the PD's office when I was writing. I said, how many cases you're carrying? This is in Patrick County, Henry County, the city of Martinsville, 177. And let's understand wow. those are all criminal cases. Some of them are murder cases. Most of them are felonies because de minimis minor cases, you're not getting a lawyer on. 177 cases to manage. That is a lot. And so there's a real burnout issue and 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 there's a, a real self-worth issue. And, and that's exactly what Andy Hughes is going through. And, and he has decided when he catches this case that he really can't get rid of, which is a national murder case because of his peculiar circumstances. Um, he has decided that he wants to leave, doesn't know where he's going. He just knows he doesn't want to stay where he is. He, he loves his coworkers. He likes what he's doing in, in sort of the general sense, but he is burned out and ready to go. All right. So a little bit about the title here, because I read it. Uh, I'm reading the book. I'm trying to, okay, when is the Plinko bounce going to come in? It's going to come in somewhere. And and when it, and I was trying to remember, I, I actually Googled it before I got there just to, <laughs> try, to try to remind myself what it was. But, but let's talk about that for our listeners uh, from the title of the book and, and kind of what it symbolizes when it comes to being in a court case. The, the the plinko bounce, and I I haven't seen a lot of plinko, but it's a um, it's, it's a, a game. It, it's it's a it's a TV game on the Price is Right. You take a, right. a big disc and you drop right. it in a, a vertical yep. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sort of pegboard, and it bangs and plinks and 
ricochets and drops to the bottom and lands in a money amount. And the crazy thing about Plinko is you can drop it in the same place 10 times in a row right. and it will take a different path, almost random and unpredictable to the bottom. And occasionally in the sort of predictable turn the crank justice system that we all work in, you get a Plinko case and, and things go haywire, they become chaotic and you just have no idea where this thing will land. Again, that's an aberration. That doesn't happen a whole lot, but when it does, it's just a wild ride. And, and that's, again, what this book is about. You, you get this series of, of flukes, good luck, breaks. One of the things that happens that we've all seen as lawyers is a, a jury can, can turn a case, and we all know that. And that goes to, to the venue, that goes to the people on the jury, and that goes to the locale. And in this case, and it's, it's happened before, we've all seen it. I mean, maybe once or twice in decades, you get this incredible jury for a defendant or the prosecution. We don't, we don't see the end of many prosecution good draws because the defendant and his or her lawyer said, whoa, I'm not going in front of that jury. I know those folks. We've done that in Patrick County. Uh, I've seen the jury we pull a jury and, and then I see the defense lawyer at the table whisper in his client's ear and as we're changing our plea. Hmm. But you know, if, if it's a defense, a pro defense jury, you're going to see that work to the end because the Commonwealth doesn't have anything to lose. Hmm. So I want to, I want to read a little quote from your book to you and then get your thoughts on this. Cause I, I was really pulled in by this. Uh, and, and here it is. Um, the fantastical defense was no longer crazy jailbird junk. The black robe, the rituals, the suits and ties, the formal portraits of dead judges hung along the wall, the oak benches and intricate word work, the high plaster ceiling, the jurors' oaths and the soft, murky lighting, the reach and gravity of this ancient place were beginning to work alchemy to a lie. Yeah, that, that, have you, I think that happened somehow. You, when you get into court, it, it's this setting and, and this backdrop that so many people have not seen, and you've heard about it, and it has a Wizard of Oz effect almost. It's very profound, especially in Southside, and you have this, this ancient courthouse with the high ceilings and the judges along the wall, and the lighting is sort of low, and, and it, it's so formal that to begin with, and, and let me emphasize, to begin with, I think if you've not been there before and you've not served in, as a juror and, and, and you're about to make a decision that will have a real and genuine impact on somebody else's life, suddenly you're immersed in, in the, these atmospherics that make you take everything seriously. Now, that doesn't always last. What, I, it may last through an opening statement when, when you hear the opening <laughs> statement and, and, and you're rolling your eyes. But to begin with, people truly, I believe, just by nature want to do the right thing. And you put them in this environment and it is so different and, and so moving that to begin with, they take everything seriously. And you can see a, a defense starting to become robust, starting to grow. Um, and you can, and, and the next part of that is the lawyer, the, the part in the book, the lawyer is looking at their faces and he can see 
that they are taking this seriously. And so suddenly your defense, you're in the game. Your defense is real. Yeah, with everything going on, and we're not going to go down this rabbit hole at, uh, in, in the news and everything, but uh, I think trying a case in the proper place, the courtroom, uh, probably makes sense. Thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll look down the rabbit hole. I don't know that I'll follow you down it. I'll, just, I'll stick my, my, my nose in. I think it's really important. It is so frustrating for me. Think back, and let's not talk about it today. But think back to cases like O.J. Simpson or Casey Anthony. I actually watched the O.J. Simpson case, a lot of it. And I also watched a little of the civil part of that case. And it's so, so frustrating for me as a judge to hear people in the community to, to now witness people on social media, commenting on cases and law they know nothing, zero, about. Nothing. They have no idea what the law is. They have no idea what the facts are. And they have no idea what the possible verdicts and outcomes are. But yet, they comment and go on and on. This is a terrible thing to admit decades later. But if I had heard as a juror in the O.J. Simpson case, the case that that Chris Darden and Marsha Clark presented, I would have found him not guilty too. Not that I, I don't, I think he's guilty. And then you watch that civil case and you have an advantage in the civil case. You can call and put OJ, call and put him on the stand and he's convicted, uh, not convicted, but found liable. And, and, and I would have done that too. But people who didn't watch that, it's just on and on and the, and the, the comments. And of course that translates into what we see all around us today and it's exponentially worse because we are all lawyers. We all have our platform. We're all uh, on Twitter or, or, or Facebook and, and everybody, everybody's an expert and, and nobody has invested any amount of time in actually looking at the facts. And it's difficult if you live in a small town to walk down the street after letting someone who's guilty go because the Commonwealth just didn't prove the case and have people wag a finger and tell you, why in the world he's guilty? You know, and, and I said, well, you didn't hear the case. You didn't hear the facts. So yeah, I'll, I'll stick my nose in that rabbit hole. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, this might be a good time to do a little reading from the book. Uh, you've picked something out. Can you tell us uh, sort of where it is and maybe set it up? Yeah, it doesn't need a lot of setup. As you mentioned, the, the protagonist in the book is, is an, a public defender. His name is Andy Hughes. And um, he is conflicted about his job. He, he likes his work, but he is burned out. He's ready to leave. And his, his boss is Vikram Kapil. Vikram Kapil is a real person, a real lawyer, and a really good lawyer. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he's been a public defender forever. He used to be the head of the PD, uh, PD's office in Henry County. He works in South Boston, Virginia now. And they have just finished a motions hearing, um, a suppression hearing, and, and they're leaving the courthouse. They're together in the car. And um, this is the, the very brief conversation they have. And, and, and I, I, I'm already um, feeling nervous. I won't do as well reading my own stuff as you did. And you've heard me say, I don't like to read. I'll give all these disclaimers. My, my, my first reading ever, I opened for Frank McCord. How do you think that went for me? <laughs> not really well. It just well, did not go well. You've uh, lowered our expectations enough now that we're going to love it. So. <laughs> all right. So here we go. Andy rolled down his window. Strange profession hours, isn't it? We celebrate the lawyers who do the most injury to justice, who sucker punch the truth. Our deities 
are the men and women who slickster the notoriously guilty free and leave pitiable victims holding the bag. I'm literally fighting to deny a widower and semi-orphans their due. Andy flipped the blinker and the green arrow flashed. We're mechanics who sneak sugar into gas tanks, surgeons who do a victory dance after butchering a major artery. Vikram peered at him. You're difficult to please, Andy. One day your job is numbing and repetitive and inconsequential, and you decide to quit, and now you're unhappy because it's too profound? Don't ever think we're surgeons or mechanics or anything close. We don't have that much influence. We're the drones on the assembly belt, following the manual jot and tittle, and the machine spits out the product our superiors designed it to make. And there's a lot of truth in that. That's, that's, that. That really is true. I think we're the, one of the few professions where we're celebrated for not getting to objective truth. We're celebrated for getting the guilty off. Yeah, it's uh, what they call those lawyer tricks, right? You know, that's, right. The... <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. But if it weren't for those, uh, you wouldn't be able to stick them in all your novels, would you? Yeah. Well, and, and again... Most lawyers who, who are famous or good, you get an incredibly winnable case on the facts. They're so, these days with, with pretrial discovery, and, and you know this, with pretrial discovery, with, with all the motions and the information that's, ex, that's exchanged, there's just not a whole lot of slick lawyering that you can do. Lawyering that you can do. Yeah, and uh, that's the judge's job to keep it... Uh keep it fair between the parties and make sure they get a, get a fair hearing. Hey, a couple of questions on the writing life and uh, maybe some of the publication stuff. Uh, you've been quoted a number of times, uh, Martin, in our Write Quote series. We put out uh, some books uh, from authors who were in, on the podcast in the past. And one of the things you said uh, was, I would have to really like writing to have endured 20 years of rejection. Some people like stamps. Some people like tennis. Some people like bowling. I just enjoy writing. Do that. <laughs> still, still think that way. Yeah, I still, I really enjoy it. I'm retired now, and um, I have to go to the courthouse. I have a tiny little office in the in the basement. I go in once or twice, um, maybe a month. I haven't put a robe on since May of 2019, and I'll never put one on again. And so now I only have sort of one full time job, and it's the one that I, I really love. When I was working and I had a day job, I would come into where I'm sitting now and work and write every morning about six o'clock for an hour. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. It was, it allowed me to just go somewhere else. I, I was in another world and, and, and I was with other people and I just really enjoyed it. And I still do. The, the, the thing that, that really weighs on me now with this book, and I've mentioned this and you don't want to come off as share. Like this is the last, this is a farewell tour. And then there, it's a 10-year farewell tour. You have farewell tour, the final curtain, farewell tour, the, the ultimate, the platinum farewell tour, and it just keeps on going. But if I do another book, I will be pushing 70 when it hits. And it, I think writing is like anything else. We get to a point that, that we lose a little bit of edge, and, 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 and we, we, we lose a little bit of insight in the world around us and we become hidebound. And I remember, and, and you, you and I have had this discussion off the, uh, off the air. My mentor was Mr. Tom Wolf. 
and, and every day that Mr. Wolf took in air, I believe that he was the best writer on the planet. And not only was he a great writer, he was hip and funny. I mean, he's the father of new journalism. Think about how impactful Tom Wolf was on writing. But yet, as he got older, his last book was I Am Charlotte Simmons. And I remember reading that, and I, I remember thinking, it's still very good, but, but Mr. Wolf is not hitting his marks. It just, it just wasn't there. And it's like anything else. I mean, I don't want to be Joe Namath standing on the sidelines in a Rams uniform in the rain and getting benched for, for, for was it Vince Ferragamo or somebody like that? <laughs> so you get to a point that something that you really like, you might not be so good at. And, and I just worry that, that at age 70, I'm not sure who's out there doing it. I, I guess John Grisham is still very good. David Baldacci is my age and I think they'll continue. Um, there's, I, I, there are people, but I, I saw, that Lee Smith is retiring. And, and, and certainly right now, in, in my mind, at least she, she is the, uh, the queen of, of all Southern literature. She's the best. She's Larry Brown's successor in my mind. And, and I think she's, she's just, I've gotten to the point I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. So I, I just, I will really miss it when I quit. Yeah, well, let me give you a little pep talk here. You're you're still young, dude. You know it's uh, <laughs> you, you got you got some gas in the tank yet, and uh, you know for for this could be your your next thing. But uh, I mean, you, you know, you write a different kind of. You've admitted this. You write a different kind of legal thriller, and we need that. It's not just your, as you said, your high octane plot. You like to to dive into the characters, and you're going to continue to meet characters, and you're going to continue to be able to develop them, um, and. I'm looking forward to those next couple of books and I think they'll have plenty of energy in them. But I guess, you know, on that point, um, I do want to ask a writing technique question because you're, you're kind of third person close, mostly in Andy's head. And I just wondered why you like that form as opposed to say first person. Um, yeah. I know you, you know, talk about that. Well, well, let me, you know, you, let me backtrack just a little bit. Maybe, maybe what I can do is, you know, write what, you know, here, what do you think about this for, for a novel and a plot? <laughs> I think maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do a retirement home in, in Charlotte, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, try to find the, uh, <laughs> the, the mystery you know, of the, the Mecklenburg uh, decoration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You think that'll yeah. work? Yeah, I, you know, some people I, might read it. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, if we're actually, lucky, I actually read is deadly declarations, right? Deadly, de deadly declarations. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually, I got something in the mail. I got the cheap version. I downloaded it and it was really good. Congrats. Thank, I appreciate that. Thank you. That was fun. And by the way, you know, those are people in their next acts and they're doing things. That's so right. you, you can too, right? It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you should, well, I, I guess this question real quick here, you know, since you have been off the bench for five or six years, um, and you're writing about the law, do, do, are there more challenges now, or is it freed you up to explore some areas perhaps that you weren't in the minutia of every day? It's no different. It, it, you would yeah. think that I'm still a slow pen. I, I guess if you've done the same thing for 20, 30 years, that's the formula and, and that's the process. I write for an hour. I try to do a page a day. And if it's more than that, um, it's, I get tired. So I just do an hour a day. So I'm, I'm no quicker and I will never ever lack for material. If, if you've done 27 years in a courtroom, you have more material than you could possibly write about. It's not the idea. It's not the plot it's the time it's taking it and translating it from your head onto paper. I mean, that's the trick. 
And, and mm. I, I imagine after your book was published, you got this letter too. People will write you and say, I have the best idea in the world. <laughs> you won't believe what happened to me. Here's the deal we'll make. We'll sign an agreement. You, I'll tell you the story and you right. write it and we'll split the money. Did you get yeah. those letters? Well, it's funny because it? I have interviewed authors who have told me the same story, right? And, uh, <laughs> People come up. It's it's not the idea, folks. It's 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 sitting down and developing these characters, uh, and bringing bringing things to life. Uh, ideas are the easy part, right? It's the yeah. I mean, ideas and and before I start writing, I have the plot from Alpha to Omega in my head. I mean, it'll get tweaked a little bit and change a little bit, but I know what I'm going to write. Um, and 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 I've got plenty of ideas. I have the idea for the next book in my head now. I always like to wait six months after publication. That's my enjoy. You need to celebrate. Right, and, right. and here's another one that made it in the world. So you're happy and you enjoy it. And, and then I'll start again and we'll see what happens. And you had asked me something and now we've, we've left yeah, that. Yeah. I that asked point. you about third person point of view. Oh yeah. I like it. I, you know, the last book was, um, was first person, uh, mm -hmm. substitution order was, and, and I found that a lot in a certain sense, easier to write. And it makes things much more immediate and it makes it easier, I think, to turn out likable characters uh, writing in the first person. Um, and maybe I think third person and it's a little bit more objective, a little backed away. It, if you're going to do courtroom stuff, it makes it easier to do that because uh, you're, you don't need to be in somebody's head during a cross-examination. So that's probably why it's a little more buttoned up, I guess is the best way to put it. And, mm -hmm. and I think maybe it's self-indulgent, but you like to do different things. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I, I, um, I really, really enjoyed um, uh, the substitution order and loved writing in the first person. And I think it, 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 meshed well with that book. And then I guess it was, I'm trying to think, um, the Jezebel remedy. I decided that I would write from the perspective of a woman and that, that was not well received in, in many places. <laughs> it just really wasn't. I thought I did a good job and I was very careful. I had yeah. any number of folks vetted, any number of, of really, really gifted women, including my wife. And, but you, it just, one of the interesting things that came out of that is that the rule with recorded books is that if you're a man and you're an author, regardless of what the book is about, it's read by a male. And, and you sort of end up with some bad globe theater, right? I mean, you have men doing women's voices. So um, this book, that book, um, the Jezebel remedy was told from a woman's perspective and a woman protagonist. And I said, a woman should read it. And that was very unusual <laughs> for them and their format. And, and in fact, Morgan Hallett read it and she did a bang up job. And I've always been really, really proud of the job she did. So. Well, we had uh, Terry Roberts on the show and he wrote a book uh, and he was telling the story. He wrote it uh, in the perspective of a woman and he told his wife he was going to do that. And she said, you're going to do what? 
and, and but he said it, it came very natural and and uh, it was a really good book and it came fine you know you just have to, uh, it's great that you want to try different things i love that and i love the different uh, options for point of view and uh, you're right first person does get uh, more immediate in the head but third person gives you a chance to get in some other people's heads true that as well you know true that that's yourself. a good point that's exactly yeah. that's true yeah yeah so uh as we wrap up here um you know, I've asked this question. I probably asked of you, and if I did, you might have changed your answer by now. But uh, and I think authors sometimes do over time. But if you could tell your younger writing self something of value, based on what you've learned from the school of hard knocks since then about either writing or the business of writing, what would it be to uh, give your younger writing self some advice? You know, don't and and I really have learned this the hard way. Don't be in love with your own words, and. My my very first book with Gary Fiskajon editing it. I remember I got the edited manuscript back, and it was marked up. And I got I forgot I got to a a page and the page was missing. And I I called New York and I got his assistant on the phone, and um, and I said somehow you guys when you sent me my copy you you dropped a page and it's missing. He said, well, no, it's not missing. He said it was so bad and so long that Gary just <laughs> took it out and threw it away. And and that was true. And I said, well, I guess then that one's gone. And, and the answer was yes. <laughs> and Gary used to tell me, try to remember, Martin, you're not getting paid by the word. You're getting paid for the right word. And I love writing so much and, that I overwrite. And this book is the, the shortest most compact, most streamlined. It's, I've forgotten how many pages it is, but it's under 300 pages. It's the most, it's the quickest book I've ever written. And I wish I had known that going back and looking at some of my books, probably, uh, this is number six, so let's say uh, with, with the prior five books, if I could go back right now, I'd probably end up uh, an aggregate of 100 pages shorter, about 20, 10, 20 pages a book. So that's what I would tell my younger self. Don't just don't fall in love with your own prose. Well, they attribute it to Mark Twain, I think. Uh, it could have been him, could have been somebody else, but it was uh, the line: uh, "If I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter." And uh, maybe that's true for books too. <laughs> that's, that is Truman Capote. Good edit. It's good writing is rewriting. Yeah, so, yeah. More time, I'd write you a shorter letter. True. Well, Martin, this is a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. It's a fun, uh, quick read, but lots of uh, lots of good information packed in here as well. And again, fun characters. Uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope you uh, I hope you keep going uh, well past seventy because I want to continue to read more of them. And uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll talk again. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And congratulations for uh, for ep- over three hundred fifty episodes. And 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 making an impact. Good on you. Thank you.